Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much, as always, for being here. I hope all is good with you and yours. We're heading into the third last weekend of this Premier League season, which seems a little bit bonkers, but there you go. Time waits for no man or podcaster or group of people listening to a podcast or football fans. Uh, You can see why they uh, left that initial saying, a time waits for no man, because otherwise you'd be here all day. There'd be no time left to wait around for the thing that we're not waiting for. We're playing Leeds on Sunday. There's a big, big game, of course, at Anfield on Saturday night when Liverpool take on Spurs, which will have a very significant impact one way or the other on this chase for Champions League football. And we're going to be talking about that and lots more with Amy Lawrence in a few minutes' time. But just a couple of things I would like to mention before we crack on with that part of the show. You will remember, and you will have heard me, I'm sure, uh, over the course of the last few weeks, talk about how in the month of April we were going to donate every single penny that we generated from our Patreon to UNICEF. Uh, April is gone. We're now very much in May and all the stuff has come together. So I just wanted to give you a quick update on that. Our Patreon revenue plus James from Gunnar Blog donating his monthly wages from the podcast plus rounding it up to a nice even figure means that we have this week given a donation of 35,000 euros to UNICEF, which is going to go to children around the world who are suffering because of wars and conflicts. This money will go to help them with medical care, with food, with shelter, with education. And while in the grand scheme of things, it may be a drop in the ocean compared to what's actually needed Uh, because the world is a a very difficult place right now. It is a fantastic amount for this community to generate, so I'm very, very grateful to everybody who signed up for Patreon, who has been a Patreon member down the years and continues to support the site in everything that we do by uh, being a Patreon subscriber. But this month, your money has gone to a really, really fantastic place. So thank you all so much. If you just signed up for the month to make sure your money went to a good place, Brilliant. 
That's fantastic. I hope some of you stuck around, but if you just wanted to make a contribution as well as uh, enjoy what we do on Patreon, fair play to you. Thank you very much indeed for signing up. And 35,000 euros has gone to a very, very good place this week. Also, big congratulations to James, whose book, The Champ and the Chump, has been shortlisted for the Sports Entertainment Book of the Year in the Sunday Times Sportsbook Awards. There are some uh, heavy hitters in there alongside him, but it is open to a public vote. And as we know, when Arsenal Twitter, when Arsenal Online mobilizes, we can do great things. So you will find a link in the show notes to give James your vote. Uh, Just click through there and you'll find a link you can open on your phone or your device, whatever it is, and give him the vote. Or you can simply go to sportsbookawards.com forward slash vote. That is sportsbookawards forward slash vote. And the book is called The Champ and the Chump by James McNicholas. If you haven't read it, I absolutely recommend it. Not just because it's James, but because it is an excellent book. And if you want to hear a bit more about it, James and I did a podcast episode. I interviewed him about the book about uh, what it's about, the writing process, and some of the things that you may not have known, which are part and parcel of the book and the story and James's story and how it's told and how it's all tied together. You can find that, of course, in your podcast feed. It's episode 638 of the Arscast, episode 638 from the 10th of August, 2021. It is titled The Champ and the Chump as well, so you'll find uh, that in your podcast player. Do give that a listen. Get the book, read the book, and, of course, vote for James. Right, let's get on with the show, and there's plenty to play for in what remains of this season. To talk to me about that and lots more besides, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, as always, Amy Lawrence. Hi, Amy. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's going all right. Before we talk Arsenal, we're recording on Thursday Uh, just after lunchtime, and I'm still slightly, not reeling, because I've no skin in the game in particular, but the the Champions League game between Real Madrid and Manchester City, I mean, it was genuinely amazing, and I was thinking about it on many levels, and of course, you know, some people might want to laugh at Man City if they were so disposed. Some people want to talk up the character of Real Madrid and the quality that they have to do this more than once this season in the Champions League. But most of all, it just reminded me of how brilliant and amazing football can be. And there have been times over the last number of years where, I don't know, maybe I've been alone in doing a bit of soul searching about (laughs) why I invest so much time in this crazy game that takes me up and down. But, But things like that, when you think about how it affects you as a fan and just even a neutral observer, there's nothing quite like it. Absolutely. And I mean, you can imagine uh, front rooms across the world, sort of like people who may or may not have a vested interest kind of leaping around and yeah. screaming and their eyes popping out, feeling of uh, um, unimaginable drama, you know, the things that you, you don't really dare to believe in. And I, I'm only sorry that we couldn't get Peter Drury's commentary, which I've subsequently heard on uh, on some clips on the internet. And uh yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, I, 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 you know, the game was so, was so good. I almost managed to stop being quite so um, 
uh, irritated by uh, the pronunciation the, in, in, of the English commentary of Benzema. Benzema, which yeah. That's my head in, but uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that hard, is it? No. You know, there are some names that are genuinely quite difficult to master, but hey. <laughs> um, but no, it was, I think it's that thing that, from an Arsenal perspective, it reminds you of a good old days, uh, B, how much you want to be back there, mm. which is obviously what everybody is striving for and hoping for, but also a little bit of fear of how good that level can be and to get to not just into the Champions League, but into sort of latter stages of Champions League and to be a genuine competitor at that level mm. still feels like um, a bit of a pipe dream currently. There's no reason why if the club and the team and everybody involved don't sort of play smart, put all their energies into it, be unified and be lucky, which is massive. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, about the transfers that Arsenal did last summer mm. and you know the kind of law of averages of how many transfers are hits versus misses or, or middle-of-the-road ones. And it was obviously a particularly healthy number of hits this time. Yeah. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't bank on doing that every transfer window. It would be lovely, but you know, there are plenty of clubs out there, and Arsenal certainly used to be one of them not that long ago, <laughs> where you're scratching your head, thinking, "How much you pay for this bloke? You know, and and what are we going to do with them?" Um, but with the with the 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 with ambitious and smart management and emotion and good things happening. You'd like to think Arsenal have a chance of kind of returning towards those spheres, mm. you know, hopefully. But it's uh, it still feels like just getting in again yeah. makes, makes you so hungry for that when you see those kind of games. And the Champions League does have this specific energy. I know all football tournaments are capable of, like, dragging you in and... and, and putting in, you know, making you gasp with moments of wildness. Sure. But it does seem to happen a bit more frequently in the Champions League. Yeah, there's there's been like a lot of debate about whether Arsenal are, in inverted commas, ready for the Champions mm. League. The, the four games that remain, and we'll talk about those in, in, in a couple of minutes. And I've seen people say, well, maybe they're not quite ready. Maybe the squad isn't big enough. Maybe they're not developed enough. And, you know, I, I think there's some rationale for that. But at the end of the day, unless you get to the level, you're never going to get used to the level, are you? You know, mm -hmm. that's the thing. It's To me, I don't see any benefit whatsoever in sort of saying, well, you know, we should just be happy with sixth or Europa League football. <sighs> Even if it doesn't go well for you in the Champions League group stage, you, you go down into the Europa League and you can carry on your European adventures there. But it's like that thing where they, you know, they talk about great players coming into a club and, and raising the level of people around them because, you know, in training they're doing things that nobody has seen before. So unless you get there and you, you start to taste what it is, you're never going to be properly ready, are you? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think when, you, when you're looking again towards how do you not just get in it, but um, make make progress in it. When you think about that Ajax team from a few years ago that made it to the semis, mm. 
And they had some phenomenal performances and results. I don't think that was a team that was particularly used to uh, high-level elite, you know, Champions League upsets mm. at the point that they did them. Um, and you only need to go back to, you know, Arsenal's most advanced experience of Champions League in 2006 with this kind of a weird makeshift hotspot defence that still defies um, reality that it happened. And as a slightly imbalanced team that found a way and had a particular momentum. Um, I think when you look at particularly Mikel Arteta, but, you know, also the players that uh, are very much into what he's doing, I don't think you'd persuade any of them easily that Arsenal aren't ready for Champions League. I don't think that's in their thinking. If it ends up that Arsenal don't make it, they'll have to adapt uh, accordingly. But right now, and looking at the last few months that they've had and the various challenges they've faced, where it's looked impossible and then possible and then mm. probable and then impossible again, and now back into the, um, you know, fairly optimistically, you know, mm. potential, it's, I think they feel like they've been on this um, ride and they're holding on tight and they don't want to fall off big time. Yeah. We've all been on that ride this yeah. season, you know? And, and the word roller coaster is thrown around a lot by Mikel Arteta. Um, and it has felt like that at times because it started one way and you're up again, then you're down again. And um, it, it's been a while since we've got to this point of the season and it feels like the games really, really matter. And they do. These next four games are, are so important. Hopefully it won't take four games. Hopefully it'll happen more quickly than that and we can all relax a bit towards the end of the season. But you wouldn't put it past the, the machinations of football to, to take you right to the final day. I mean, how have you been coping just with knowing these games mean so much? There's sort of like a, a weird... I don't know. Like, if you know you're going to finish eighth, you want to win the games. You also you always want to see Arsenal win, but they don't do to you what these games have done, well, to me at least, you know, in the last mm. number of weeks where your palms are sweating and your heart is racing and you're thinking, Jesus Christ, just these people who are out of my control, just do the one thing that I want you to do. And my life is better and your life is better. And everyone listening to this, their life is better. But it's just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with it at the moment. It feels like something new in a way. Mm, I, that's such a good point. Cause I think we all feel so deeply invested in it this time, mm. probably because you know, it hurt to have a, a number of years where it, there felt a, a kind of inevitability that it was going to be an underachievement of some sort mm. or it would probably go wrong. Um, and because this team is so likable and what they're trying to do is so believable and everybody has hopped on, like, with this real sort of strong enthusiasm um, and goodwill, and you can feel it just walking around the place. Mm. It's in the air. It's It feels so much better. And I think that I've probably been overthinking 
each and every game <laughs> in the build-up, I'd say, compared to before. So I've had a probably disproportionate amount of time wandering and pondering and <laughs> <laughs> agonising. And uh, and then the games themselves, do, I, I, I'm trying to remember the last time a game was like really enjoyable, but, you know, they, there's been a couple of them where I actually physically have felt quite unwell in the match. I think what I should I should have gotten used to this by now after all the matches I've watched in my life. But you find yourself back at square one like a blithering idiot. Um feeling like your guts are gonna fall out. And then the the sort of the enjoyment afterwards is you know, that happy feeling. Mm. It just keep just keeps you bouncing along for quite a while, you know. Um, for quite a few days after each game, but I find the thing when I think about it, these I think it's ever since the international break where I really the the one back in February or wherever it was mm. March when there was like seventeen games to go afterwards, and I that was when the kind of like over analysis really kicked in, and I think every game before the game I was like you know this one's really important this was and then you get to the next one it's like yeah yeah no, but this one's really important. <laughs> The, it's that's been going on like a domino and uh after last after west ham which was obviously really 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 important that feels like this leeds game is super important so yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think it's um they all feel overwhelmingly massive so i gotta credit the players because they must be feeling similar you know they're made of flesh and blood and, mm. and thoughts and moods like the rest of us I and mean, i can't they can't be immune to the same feelings that we have although hopefully they don't have them (laughs) in quite the same way and that it's a more of a positive drive for them rather than a kind of neurosis um but yeah they must be feeling it each game as well you know the enormity of each game because the prize feels so important um but they're handling it extremely well even if performances are imperfect. Yeah, I mean, at this point, though, it's not about performances, is it? Because the margin for error now is just completely minimal. Um, You know, if you lose a game early in the season, you've got time to make up for it. You don't have any room for mistakes now. Um, And that's why something like the West Ham game, an imperfect performance, Mikel Arteta called it an, an ugly win, which... I've seen uglier, but it, it felt very much like a, a sort of end of season game where one club, West Ham, obviously have got a European semi final tonight as we're talking. That's sort of on the horizon for them, and Arsenal just had to find a way to win and did mm-hmm. find a way to win. And and being able to do that in games like this at this point of the season is is really important. And you know, it was interesting to hear Aaron Ramsdale talk on Sky afterwards and say, you know, uh, yeah, top four, but you know, we'll keep going for third. Mm-hmm. So that idea that they're they're looking for something a bit more than everyone's expecting is is quite interesting. But were you expecting Arsenal to be in the top four chase this season? I mean, there, there are people... At what, what, what point? <laughs> at, well, I mean, at the, at the start of the season, because you, you will hear people say, well, look, they spent more money than any other club. Should they not really be expected to scrap for the top four? But, you know, I, I have to say, I, I thought a top six finish would be about where we would... Uh, 
be looking at as a as a development season with these new players and with the the new age profile of the team. I wasn't expecting to be in this top four chase at all. Um, but I mean, th- that this is where you kind of have to recalibrate your expectations as well, isn't mm. it? That you're there, so you've got to go for it kind of thing. And I guess that's where you can understand the logic and the rationale of people who say this maybe com- is coming too early, it's going to be a stretch. Mm. I mean, it's a different thing to whether it's a stretch for the players individually or whether it's a stretch for the squad as a whole. Yeah. Because I think there are, you know, what one might call the more or less first 11 that everyone sort of knows who they are, mm. who I think have all played with um, enough qualities to show that they they should be perfectly ready for the Champions League stage in some way. Um, but as a squad, kind of trying to take on the demands of the Champions League and Premier League, you know, high-level intensity, um, having a lot of midweek football and travel to factor in, which has been absent this season. Um, Extra pressures psychologically, it can be really draining. And, you know, dealing with the kind of uh, the adrenaline rushes and then having to sort of Mm. regroup. Um, It's just going to need much more high-quality manpower than the current squad. Because I think leaning on uh, some of the fringe players today is nowhere near enough to Mm. take on um, a Champions League and Premier League season. And also, obviously, the goal is to, you know, it's taken a monumental effort for this team to get around fourth, let's say, fourth or fifth. um, And to do it again with all the extra Mm. uh, bonuses of Champions League football is going to be even harder probably next year. So... But the good thing is, I think that the club are under no illusions and all the plans that they've already got in place, they're not going to sit down and wait and then mm. draw up a list after the final game of the season against Everton. The lists are there and they've got three separate lists that they've had for a while. One is you no know, Europe or Conference League. One is Europa League and one is Champions League. Mm. So we can and knock they, the third one off because we've got they Europa have League. Minimum. Three completely different budgets. I would think. And they have a bunch of different types of names in terms of number of names and possibly quality of names. Although I think Arteta and everything that he's done so far would lead you to imagine that he doesn't want to compromise on the kind of quality of names on his list. It may be more a kind of quantity thing. Mm. The quantity element is interesting because uh, I was looking at the links to the Bologna left back. Uh, Aaron Hickey, uh, and I don't know how true they are, but on paper, it strikes me as a kind of deal that makes sense because he's young, he fits the age profile, but is uh, apparently as two-footed as they come. They didn't know if he was left-footed or right-footed when he was growing up. So it's like a defender, Santi Cazorla kind of guy, but he can play left-back, he can play right-back, he can play centre-half, uh, he can play central midfield. Gabriel Jesus, who we've been linked to very strongly, uh, a player who can play right across the forward line. Um, he spoke about Tommy Asu being able to play right back, left back, centre half as he plays for Japan. And I do wonder if part of the plan for this summer, you know, because there is a lot to do and there may be way more to do than we think, depending on who goes, because there are players coming to mm. the end of their contracts, maybe one or two we might like to keep just because it's 
an easy slash cost effective way of, of maintaining some squad depth. But I wonder if that that quantity issue might be solved a little bit by the versatility of the players that they bring in, people who can play in numerous positions. Uh, absolutely all for it in in some cases, but I don't think in every case. I think there are a certain key personnel yeah. where, you, you know, you're building a team and you're building an understanding within that team that you've got, you know, some sensational, really important, dominant people mm. in key positions. So I, I don't know how much I want my centre-back, my main guy to play, to be able to play five positions or my top, you know, uh, dominant midfielder to be able to play all across midfield and sure. wide and n- number 10 and, and n- num- number six to sit in front of a back four or whatever. I don't know if I want my centre forward necessarily to be able to play everywhere. Mm. Um, I think in, I think I think a mixture of the two would be ideal. So some players who do give you that versatility in, in backup and others who are, you know, the man in their position I think Arsenal need that. Yeah. How how badly do you think Mikel Arteta wants the striker that we all want him to sign? Because this will be maybe his sixth transfer window without ever signing an out-and-out forward, an out-and-out striker. And, and there was no need for it, to be fair, in a couple of windows because he had Aubameyang, he had Lacazette, he had Eddie Nketiah as, as backup. So... I can understand why that wasn't necessarily a priority down the years, but it certainly is now. And there was an interview a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about, like, what do you want your striker to do? And the first thing he said was, score goals. I need a guy who can score goals. And after that, if he can do the dropping deep and laying off and all that kind of stuff. But we need that goal threat, that presence up front. There's a lot to do this summer, but it feels like the priority is that position. So how much sort of of the club's resources, and I don't just mean financially, do you think has gone into looking for that player and making sure that that deal is going to happen this summer? Uh, it's, it, it, if it isn't um, priority number one, then something's wrong somewhere. Mm. But I think they know what they're doing there. I mean, the only question really, though, is is it one major target is it two targets you know two strikers would not necessarily be unwelcome no um depending on how you know the rest of the squad movement and contractual situations go is it one major and one minor um you know how are they balancing out what they commit in terms of resources to the center forward position are they going to throw the kitchen sink at one guy or Mm. are they going to try and be clever and bring in a couple of different options um, that's the fun that we've got to speculate about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think what's interesting is that maybe this time last year, speaking ahead of last summer's transfer window, there was so much less faith in Arsenal to make those calls. And yeah. I think they didn't have the credibility in terms of uh, sort of strategic recruitment. Mm. And... You know, there's they've got the double blessing really of having had a a, a really uh, substantially effective window last summer, and if this turns out to be a season of great progress, thanks partly to a lot of those signings, sure. 
um, that I think, you know, sometimes it's like a momentum feeling, you know, a success breeds success, you know, good feeling breeds good feeling. Yeah. And I think if, if those two things happen, it gives a lot more uh, power to the arm of Arsenal in going out to try and get the guy that they want or guys they want. The progress as well might make Arsenal a more attractive destination for any potential signing as well, right? Because if it looks like a club that is on the way up, going places, developing, growing, hopefully to challenge for uh, the big prizes, because that is what we all want. And that certainly seems to be what Mikel Arteta wants. Every time he talks, he talks about getting us back to a place where we can challenge uh, for the Premier League and, and hopefully become a club that can challenge or go deep into the Champions League, etc., etc. But, it, I mean, that might make your job a bit easier as a, a recruiting club to say, look what you could be part of. I, I hope so, but I also think that there's, you know, people in football talk and, um, you know, while you can sort of hilariously sort of fantasise about Martin Odegaard chatting away to Erling Haaland, for example. <laughs> um, it, you know, there is a reality of players at a high level chatting or their representatives or people know people. And if the vibes coming out are like, hey man, this is a place to be, you know, this is great. It, it can't do you any harm, can mm. it? As a, as a selling point. Mm. No, I don't think it can. I mean, I don't think Erling Haaland is any kind of realistic target, but I just meant... Oh, come on, let me dream. (laughs) Okay, fire. That's fine. I don't want to shatter your dreams uh, on a Thursday (laughs) afternoon. You mentioned earlier the the feeling that's going around. And I I think it's one of the more under-discussed aspects of what's going on is the consistency of the message that has come from Mikel Arteta over the the period of his time here through the various ups and downs and difficulties and, and uh, terrible moments and bizarre moments and surreal moments that we've all lived through and endured and experienced. But he ha- has consistently talked about wanting a connection between the team and the fans. And he referenced the, maybe he didn't reference, maybe it's just something that's all in our consciousness now, is the the Man City game just before he took over and the vision of him or the picture of him on the bench sort of looking around at a stadium that was in a strange place because Emery had gone, Freddie was in charge, there were players on the pitch that people didn't identify with might be the best way of putting it. Um and he talked about something being missing. And that seems to be the thing that he was talking about the most. So as we're sitting here now with, with four games left of this season, and that connection that you've spoken about, and that connection that many of us are feeling, that we like this team, that we're invested in it, that it's going both ways as well. The 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 symbiosis of win generating applause the team and the fans applauding each other in as much as it's just the team coming over to clap the fans it feels like very much a a two-way street for everything else that goes on on the training ground recruitment tactics team formation selection in-game management that part of what Mikel Arteta has done I think has been really really important to where we are in this season so far it's played a big part really important but also 
so easy to talk about, but so bloody difficult to do. Mm. I mean, every manager joining a new club is going to talk about, oh, yeah, we want the fans behind us and da 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 da. You know, even Unai Emery said that at the very beginning of his time, you know, mm. uh, not having any real connection previously with, with the club. And like you say, Mikel has been almost fixated by this. In the amount of times he references it, and he brings it up by himself without being asked. He, he wants to constantly reinforce this message. And I think he does the same with the players as well. I think he wants to constantly reinforce with them this sense of, you know, unity, the club, everybody together, and everybody means everybody. Mm. Everybody doesn't just mean the people in the dressing room. It means all the people working at London Coney and, and Highbury House and wherever. And it means all the people who come through the turnstiles at the Emirates or travel away. And it means all the people all over the world who are getting up at stupid o'clock um, to watch matches. Yeah. And he is trying to kind of bring everybody together under this same umbrella and yeah, create a kind of a support network almost. I remember when I was lucky enough to go to London Coney and chat with him earlier this season. Yeah. Uh, um, and there's there's a big tree. He's quite quite into trees. There's not in a kind of um, Hector Bellerin way, but uh, um, there's a there's a big sort of engraving of a of a tree in his sort of office space where he sits with the coaches. And someone was explaining to me that his sort of philosophy is like um, you know the roots is the club and the trunk is the you know coaching staff and the branches of the players and the leaves. I I, I can't remember the exact sort of makeup of it, but you get the gist. And it's all about it being connected and strong as a kind of foundation to everything that you do. And what is impressive is he's he's talked the talk on this a lot, but he's walked the walk, you know, he's made it happen. Mm. And anybody who goes to the, uh, uh, to watch the team these days, um, you just look at people's faces around you. It's different. Everyone feels better. And even we started off our chat talking about the Champions League and, you know, those moments of madness where you're mm. like, ah, you know, <laughs> like just like a wildebeest because yeah. something's happened that's so crazy. And we've had quite a lot of those this season mm. to the frustration of the celebration police, which is obviously just yet more fuel for this sentiment yeah but it you know even going back to the Tottenham game at home and Villa at home which feels yonks ago at the beginning of the season people were you know smashing the sort of walls on the way out the stadium you know really sort of singing in the concourses like things started happening quite a while ago really uh, now and a little bit of siege mentality I think has developed within the whole club. So, you know, the the fans and the players have got together and thought, right, we're all in this. Yeah. And it's it is seeming to be giving everyone a lot of power and oh. a little bit extra, which I think is absolutely necessary because especially lately, you know, these games that we that, that have been happening where it's sloppy, it's it's careless, it's wild. You know, the games are mm. ebbing and flowing and feeling very unpredictable and and, and slightly out of control. You, you know, the fact that in the end there's enough clarity and enough determination in the team to make sure it goes their way than the other way when it's 
you know, all these recent games have had an have had an element of like anything can happen here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting aspect of it as well, the siege mentality. And and like there's there's almost like, to my mind, the sort of two Mikel Arteta's because you can look at a guy who is seemingly at times cold is not the 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 right word, but like laser focused really serious about the work that he's doing, what he wants to do, what he expects from his players, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the guy who's like running up and down the sideline going like, vamos, when they score a goal. And he's like, you can see the emotion is is coming out of him. Um, and that's sort of those two aspects of his personality, I think make it a little bit difficult for some people to to connect with him in a way. And I thought that was quite an interesting aspect of your your um, conversation with him earlier in the season where, you know, th- this was a very human, if that's the right word, Mikel Arteta. You know, it was more the person than the manager and we get exposed much more to Mikel Arteta, the manager. But- well, I think that's deliberate on his part. I think yeah. he doesn't particularly feel he wants to or needs to go over the top to, mm. you know, to show his human side. I think he shows it a lot more easily in the training ground and, you know, in the privacy of the sanctuary of London Coney. Mm. But, uh, you know, there's it's funny because I sometimes think, and, you know, there's not much higher praise really from an Arsenal perspective, but there are elements of Mikel that feel very George Graham. Mm-hmm. And there are elements of him that feel a bit more arson. Um, and he's, I think, you know, that steeliness that he has that's reminiscent of George Graham is, you know, is really important to what he's trying to do because he's obviously had to overcome some absurd hurdles along the way mm-hmm. and probably still will, you know. Uh, this game ain't plain sailing. And, and I think it's helpful that, he has felt really, really uh, almost, um, what's the right word? Um, just total backing of the club in good times and bad. Mm. And I think if you're a manager and you feel, you know, after those first three games of the season, I don't think he had to feel self-doubt or question himself because of what people upstairs are thinking. I think whatever questions he had, or when he sat down and came to the conclusion that he came to about Aubameyang and took that gamble. And it's still a bloody great gamble sitting here with four games to go, yeah. but you know, we'll see how it, how, how it ends. But those big moments, the fact that he hasn't had worry about what the people upstairs think of him, because they've made it abundantly clear that they back him mm. and they back him for the long haul. Um, that has allowed him, I think, to evolve a little bit, which is only natural. You know, he's still a very young manager and he's still only in what is third season or something, which seems pretty wild. But is Mikel Arteta of today the same Mikel Arteta who sat there looking around the half-empty Emirates in that Man City game you were talking about? No, I don't don't think he... You know, I, I don't think, think he, he is can. changing. It just might not be as kind of like as showy as sure. some people might want to see to be able to understand it more. I, I don't know how you could come into your first ever managerial job in the circumstances that he came into it, um, dealing with all the things that he's had to deal with, pandemic and all that kind of stuff, um, lockdown, fans not being there, et cetera, et cetera, 
and not be a different person. Um, but it does raise a question about, you know, what happens if we considered, let's say, the top six a minimum benchmark for this season getting back into Europe, and we've done that, um, we are going to finish minimum top six. Where do you think, given that the club do back him as strongly as uh, as they do, where do you think that leaves us in terms of uh, his future, given that he does have a year left on his contract, if there are clubs out there that might start looking at a manager? Um, you know, I'm not saying there's anyone out there right now, but it feels like Arteta has fulfilled the requirements to continue this project, if you like, uh, for longer based on what has happened so far this season. And hopefully, fingers crossed, it's going to end in a much um, a much happier way um, if these four games play out the way we do. So do you think the club potentially are thinking, this is a guy we're going to have to nail our colours to for, or a mast? I don't want them nailing anything to him. That would be painful. But, <laughs> you know, that... that that if there were question marks, if there were questions about him and his ability to do it after two eighth-place finishes, is the progress there for this to continue? Oh, uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I, I mean, you know, there have been parts of this season where there's been plenty of critics who have felt, you know, if Arsenal finish sixth or seventh and don't improve significantly on eighth after uh, all that outlay in the summer, well, that would be... You know, unacceptable. Um, but I just think that the, the measurements of progress are not solely in the league table, but obviously that's the hugest barometer there's going to be in terms of perceptions. Mm -hmm. So it's terribly helpful if that can be yeah. you know, there, yeah. there as a kind of um, planting your flag at the top of the mountain type of thing or, or the top section of the mountain. Sure. Um, but I, I, I mean, all the signs are that I think a deal to extend Arteta has been a major priority for Arsenal and an almost an inevitability uh, in recent weeks. So I think there's, there's strong feelings that it's as good as done. Okay. Um, and I would say anyone imagining life after Mikel Arteta at Arsenal in the near future probably needs to think again. Okay. Need to look a few years down the line. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it does make sense because I think if you give a guy the level of control is maybe not the right word, but the level of responsibility to, to completely rebuild a squad, a team, and maybe even a club that was in a difficult place after the departure of a legacy manager like Arsene Wenger, um, you know, after what had happened with, with Unai Emery, uh, good coach, but kind of wrong guy at the wrong club at the wrong time. Something had to, something had to change or you could keep doing it, which is what Manchester United have done and look where they are now. You know, Ferguson mm -hmm. left in 2013 and they're still scrabbling around looking for the right way to, to do things. So yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Can I ask you a question, Andrew? Sure. Would you say when you think back to when Mikel Arteta was appointed that in the time up to now, he's done as expected or better or worse than you might have anticipated for the period of time he's been involved? Um, it's a really good question because I wasn't expecting a, a pandemic <laughs> in yeah, the middle fair. of it. Um, I was always... 
hopeful uh, and optimistic about what he might be able to do. And going back to when he first took over, I always liked what he said about what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. Um, the acknowledgement that things were not right at the football club, I think, was was a big step. It's sort of like admitting to a problem before you can fix it. And we hadn't ad- we hadn't acknowledged as a football club that we had big problems. I don't think we kept trying to fix them with with short term things. So that gave me real hope um, and optimism. But of course, there was no frame of reference for for what he could do personally as a manager um, as a coach I think there was some idea that he was uh, a guy who could improve players at Man City there was talk about what he did with Raheem Sterling and Leroy Sané etc etc but being a coach and being a manager are two two very different things as we know Um, I think his resilience or his ability to turn things around just when you think it's going right off the cliff is is quite important and uh, not just for him but I think having that ability as a manager and as a person and having that belief in or being able to instill that belief in and keep people with you when things are not going well is is one of his big qualities um I, I know there are people there who will say like well it would be better if you didn't get yourself in the shit in the first place which is you know a fair point and I take that on board but I I do think the job that he has had to do has been underestimated in in terms of size on and off the pitch. So I can't say I was pleased by two eighth place finishes, but this season, I think we, if we can get into the top four, if you were to say in 2019, when he took over from Unai Emery that December, it was December, wasn't it? So if you had said, okay, in 2019, he's taken over, everything's a bit of a mess, but by the end of the 2021-22 season, Arsenal will be back in the Champions League, I'd have taken that for sure because there there was and has been a a lot to do. Um, I think we have to... Riding on these next games, mate, huh? Well, there is. There is. I mean, that's that goes back to what we were talking about at the start, that there is so much riding on them, that there's so much expectation and so much hope and, and optimism. Um, but I do think as well that it's really important to remember that the assess- any assessment of the season, um, if it is anything lower than top four, having, been, having ha- had it in Arsenal's mm. graph a couple of times towards the end of the season, will involve analysis of his Aubameyang uh, episode, let's say. Sure. And the way that that was handled. Um, if you, know, if Aubame- you get away with it, yeah. then yeah. It, there's, there won't be any criticism. And I think the majority of people can feel happy for Arsenal and happy for Aubameyang that he's gone off and had a new yeah. lease of life in Barcelona. But if it, if, if it doesn't, and you know, there's a couple of goals missing, mm. um, it'd be hard to think that people won't look at that as some sort of uh, black mark on his record as a, as a piece of management. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I still, I still find myself, you know, because we're so far away from it now, even, but just thinking that was just an enormous call for a young manager in this situation that he found himself in with this club. Enormous. 
Doesn't still that... sort of slightly overwhelmed by yeah. how that went. Doesn't that come back to the what you were saying about the confidence of knowing that he's got the backing of those on high yeah. to make a decision like that? Yeah, and I think that the people on high were part of that decision. I don't think he made it in isolation. So sure. I think he, he wouldn't have just done it and then, you know, pop through an email to... <laughs> <laughs> Dear Josh, oh, by the way, yeah. <laughs> I just fucked off our striker. You know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I agree. I think that confidence thing is is important. Yeah. So just very finally, we've spoken or or it has been said that, that Arsenal are in one game at a time territory, but it's sort of like two games at a time when it's as close as it is for this top four position because, you know, our game is our one game at a time, but there's one eye very, very uh, closely looking at what that lot are doing as well. Have you had, have you had words with the mug smasher this week? Um, I mean, you know, not, they, he does understand what uh, what's at stake here. I, I hope he does. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure he can quite get the message across to Liverpool as much as Jurgen Klopp might, you know. But yeah, it's... I don't know if it would feel quite as terrifying. In fact, I know it wouldn't feel as terrifying as it does if it was literally any other club that was competing for the top four with yeah. us. If it was Manchester United sure. and we, we didn't make it, you'd be you'd be gutted, of course. But I think you would you'd find it easier to cope with than if it was them, you know? So looking at this weekend, I'm looking at Leeds and what we can do against Leeds because that's the only thing we can control. But it would be you know, every Arsenal fan is looking at, at what they're doing and keeping fingers crossed sure. that that somehow they they spurs themselves into spurs oblivion, if you like. Yeah, but it may need to go beyond that, you know, because I still think that irrespective of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Arsenal obviously looking at Leeds coming up imminently, but, and then the big one, but mm. Newcastle away game has been bothering me for a while. Mm. It's the sort of, uh, it's it's the one people aren't really thinking about and talking about, but, I, I I would be very very anxious. I think going into that, if that if that ended up mathematically being mm. you know a, a must win or can't slip in situation, because they're just you know they're so relaxed. They're playing such relaxed football and sure. you know, they're enjoying themselves. And if there's a tension and a sort of carelessness in Arsenal's game because there's so much on it and mm. they're all relaxed and in a winning habit. That game makes me nervous. Mm. They all make me nervous at this point. <laughs> Obviously, I can't. I can't even. I can't even begin to think about Newcastle. No, I know it's quite far away. It's just been looming in the back of my mind for a while. I don't no. know why. I know, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. Look, I, I so desperately want to go into that final game of the season against Everton with literally nothing at stake from our perspective because it's all done and dusted and we can just enjoy a final home game happen? of the season. Do I think it's, it's going to happen? see it happening in three games? Wow. Well, I mean, look, if we beat Leeds... If, 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 man. And I, if, honestly, and I if, can't and I'd and be if, amazed if I, we went into the Everton game and it was all done. I mean... I just don't know what to think. You know, I can't, it's impossible to predict. I'm trying to, for, for the sake of my own nuts, nerves. Aren't you? It's, yeah. it's really not, it's not healthy. It's just for the sake of my own nerves. I look at Everton and I think, 
sunny day, North London, everyone's out. Everyone's having a great time. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got some some nice memories of that particular fixture, but yeah, I, I would I would give quite a lot for that game to mean nothing for us. It might well mean something for Everton on the day, of course, but for us, I keep fingers crossed. That's all. I mean, it's my coping mechanism. It's just thinking about that being the nice day out that I think we all deserve after this season and the last couple of seasons that have come with it. But yeah, roller coaster, some twists and turns to come, maybe so. Uh, okay, we leave it there, will we? <laughs> I'm now just, I'm now my stomach's already really beginning to go in anticipation of the Leeds game, which is like how many days away? I know three three days oh, away now. Yes, yeah, Sunday <laughs> Sunday afternoon. All right. Well, look, I apologise for uh, getting you all in a state at this point, but it's always great to talk to you, Amy Lawrence. Thanks a million. Cheers, Andrew. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thank you very much, as always, to Amy Lawrence. You can find Amy on Twitter at AmyLawrence71, at AmyLawrence71. And, of course, writing about Arsenal for The Athletic. Right. Well, that is just about that for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please do give us a review. If you can find the time and the inclination to do that, that will be very much appreciated. So thank you in advance for that. For more on the upcoming game against Leeds, we will be previewing that over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. Myself and Lewis Ambrose will be looking ahead to that game and the weekend's Premier League fixtures, not all of which, but some of which will have an impact on this top four chase. So patreon.com forward slash arsblog we'll have that podcast for you friday afternoon there or thereabouts and of course james and i will be here on monday with an arsecast extra fingers crossed it will be another goodly morning i think we could all do with one of those so until then have yourselves a great weekend or certainly as good a weekend as the football allows we'll be here on monday until then take it easy folks cheers bye-bye
Well, well, well. What have we got here, then? Oh, good evening, officer. Is there something I can help you with? Well, I can't help but notice that you are celebrating. Uh, I assume you've got a very good reason to celebrate so openly? Well, uh, actually, yes, as it happens, I do. I'm, I'm celebrating the birth of my first child. Well, I, I didn't give birth, obviously. My wife did, but we're ever so excited. The birth of a child, you say? Well, uh, let me just confer with my colleague here, Officer Cunty. Officer Cunty, this man seems to think that a child being born is sufficient cause for celebrating in a raucous manner. What do you think? I've told you before, my name is Kundi. Not Kunti. Nevertheless, no, it's not sufficient cause for celebration. Anyone can have a child, but you've got to get it to school, then to university, then into a job, and then maybe, when it's got a job, it's got its feet under the table, it's got a good pension, got a house, and maybe some kids of its own, then you can celebrate. Oh, I didn't realise it wasn't the... The done thing. I mean, I'm sure I've seen people celebrate the births of children before. How do you explain christenings and baby showers? Pardon me, sir, what did you say? Christenings. Baby showers. Did you just hear that, Officer Cunty? It's Condi, not Conti, but yes, I heard him. I don't think we've got any choice but to take him in. Take me in? For, for what exactly? A little something called endangerment of a child. What? That's right, we both heard you talking about giving a child, a newborn child, a shower. They can't even stand up straight yet. What if he slips? Splits his head open? Officer Canty's right, sir. You are nicked. Conde! But, 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 this is outrageous. Show your mouth, sir, or we'll have you deported. Remember, you are dealing with the most powerful force in the land. The Celebration Police. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.